if you want to take out your Bibles, if you didn't uh, have a Bible, didn't bring one with you, we've got Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at all, congratulations, you now have a Bible. That's yours. It's in your hands. So take that with you. We get excited about people taking our Bibles. Um, Matthew 15, what we find is we're now uh, into the middle of Jesus' ministry. And as we've talked about, the theme of the gospel according to Matthew is Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. He's the Messiah that's been prophesied about for thousands of years. But the thing is, uh, as he is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, um, the prophecies that also spoke of him talked about him being rejected, (laughs) him being despised. The prophecies weren't all just that people were going to love him. In fact, uh, very clearly, Daniel says that the Messiah would be cut off, meaning literally he would be killed. And so we see as Jesus is now proclaiming to be this Jewish Messiah, and Matthew's laying this out there in the story, what we find is a sub-theme in the gospel is the rising hatred, dislike, displeasure with Jesus, particularly by the religious elite. The Pharisees and the scribes is who we're going to see in the story today. But the religious elite were threatened by him because he, he sought to actually disrupt their traditions. Now, when we think about traditions and and traditions that are around today, uh, here's just a few to keep in mind as a backdrop. We think about uh, prayer, right? So some traditions serve a function, uh, and others uh, did serve a function at one time, but they no longer do. But if you just think about prayer, biblically, if you look through Scripture, what you find is people pray um, with their eyes lifted to heaven. They pray with their hands lifted up to the skies. They pray with their faces, face down on the ground, laying prostrate across the ground. Um, But what you do not find anywhere in Scripture is uh, head bowed, eyes closed, hands together, prayer. (laughs) There's actually uh, none of that in Scripture at all. And yet, we teach this to our kids uh, in particular, and we continue to practice this, even though it's not uh, scriptural. And so what we find is some uh, traditions are actually uh, created by man, but they do serve a function. And if you've ever served with children, you know that this is a very awesome function, that you have your head down, your eyes closed, and your hands uh, closely gripped together. Because if you eat at our dinner table with someone like baby Madeline, she is not afraid to take whatever you have off of your plate that she likes better than what's on her plate while your head is down and your eyes are closed. She's a very covert food stealer. And so, and it's never what's healthy, by the way. It's always bread or mandarin oranges. Whatever it is she likes, she's going to take, which is why, parents, we encourage our kids, head bowed, eyes closed. And yet, it's important for us to note that's not actually uh, required for us to be able to pray. And so, often, I encourage you to pray throughout the day. And if you're like me, you drive a lot. What do you have to do? You, You pray as you drive. I would encourage you not to close your eyes. I've seen some of you driving. It does look like you close your eyes while you drive, but don't do that. Keep them open. It's okay to pray with your eyes open. Another one is uh, worship. If you grew up in a, in a more liturgical church or a traditional church, uh, you've been in scenes where there's the choir in the background, right? And everybody's got the choir robes on. The choir robes in a liturgical church, it's a big deal. So the church I grew up in, very big deal. In fact, some of the biggest arguments we would have is when it's time to get new choir robes, What should they look like? And then what do we do with the old choir robes? We can't just throw them out because they're holy, right? So the thing is, the tradition of choir robes actually started uh, from the Middle East. Christianity, remember, was birthed from Israel, and what they wore in the Middle East was a 
a tunic, an outer covering. It looked a lot like a dress or a robe. That's what they wore back then. And so then as church history goes along, what we find is this tradition that was birthed out of just their normal dress has now become a huge part of our church services. So much so that the function has actually gotten lost from it because one of the big things with choir robes, when you go to buy them, it's what do you want the sleeves to look like? Do you want the long, flowing sleeves so when the cantata is going, they look like angels up there? Um, but interestingly enough, in the Middle East, um, because they would come to church and they would go all day long. Yeah, thank the Lord, you're going to get out of here in an hour, so it's okay. But they would go all day, and they would enjoy many meals together. And so as they're going all day to church and enjoying meals together, but then it's time to get up and speak again and share God's word, uh, what happens is many times the, the men who had these long beards, they get a little bit of, of chicken grease in their beard. Maybe, maybe got one hanging on there that they didn't know about. And so they would have these long sleeves to essentially wipe the chicken grease off of their beard. It had a very practical purpose, but you see that through history, we actually take these things and we turn them into tradition. We make really big deals out of something that had a very practical function. And then finally, as we're setting the stage here for tradition, we think about preaching, right? I'm not going to let myself off the hook. So what we find is, is that in the 1920s, something interesting happened. It was the, the advent or the popularization of the radio. Every family would have a radio in their home, and this was the most uh, popular form of media. And so as radio comes about, what, what uh, uh, preachers and teachers want to do is they want to get the Word of God into your home. So what's a great way to do that? What's the radio? And so preachers began to preach on the radio in the 1920s. But the thing is, they didn't have uh, amplification that was very good. Uh, they didn't have uh, you know, awesome buildings that sound like this building sounds. And so what preachers began to have to do to be heard on the radio is they began to have to yell like this in order to get their point across. And because the quality of the audio wasn't very good, they would then uh, over-enunciate. And so the next thing you know is years later, in order to be considered a really good preacher, you must yell and over-enunciate your words as you call down fire from heaven. In fact, if you could sweat while you're doing it, then we feel like you're really getting the Jesus out there to us. And so uh, the reality is we've now uh, got this uh, ranking on was he a good preacher or was he not based on how did he yell, what kind of inflection did he have in his voice, and did he sweat on me at all from the front row. But these things were actually birthed out of necessity. They had a function until they did not have a function. In other words, there was no Holy Spirit driving unction behind it. And so many things that we find in church actually began with a very specific and important purpose until one day they just did not. And so with all that said, let's pick up in Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. And then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And verse 3, And he answered them and said, Why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. And then in verse 6, 
And then he need not honor his father or his mother. Thus, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. And so, we begin by seeing these uh, scribes and Pharisees, again, the religious elite, uh, those that were most threatened by Jesus because he was upending uh, what, what they ultimately loved, which was power. They come to him and they, they question him about the tradition, in verse 2, of the elders. Now, this tradition of the elders is something that they said was actually given to Moses. So Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He gets the law given to him by God. Exodus chapter 20, he comes down with the Ten Commandments, and it's the written law. And Moses actually writes the first five books of our Bible, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. It's known as the books of the law or the Pentateuch, meaning five. But then they said that he also came down and gave them additional commentary. And that became known as the oral law, that Moses passed on to these elders that he appointed additional things to make God's law more clear. And so this is the tradition of the elders or the oral law that these men are now questioning Jesus about. And they ask him in verse 2 specifically about his disciples not washing their hands. I think it's important to note that this is not traditional hand washing that we do before a meal. Uh, by the way, my kids would disagree, but it is a good idea to wash your hands before you eat. Please continue to do that practice. But this is a traditional hand washing or a ceremonial hand washing where they would actually take a, a, a jug of water or a bucket and they would pour it down from their elbow down to the tips of their fingers and let the water just drip off their fingers after they had washed their hands. It was to signify an even additional holiness. Now, it's not actually in Scripture about ceremonial hand-washing, but this is something they took from the, from the tradition of the elders. And so the hand-washing that they are questioning Jesus about with his disciples is this kind of ceremonial act. Now then in verse 3, I love it when Jesus does this. He takes a question that they ask him, and he gives them another question. He never does that in your life, does he? Where he takes a question, then he gives you another question? Probably not. Maybe that's just me. And so Jesus asked this. He answered and said, Why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your, trans, because of your uh, tradition? And so his question is, Why do you transgress? Now the word transgression I've shared with you before, it's different than a sin. A sin is uh, it's an archery term. It's where uh, an archer draws back a bow, and he intends to hit his target, except when he lets it go, he accidentally does not uh, hit the target. Uh, that's a sin. A transgression is where the archer draws back the bow and goes, you know what, I don't feel like hitting the target today. Today is just not a good day for me. And so completely pointing the other direction, they let it fly. That's a transgression. This is what they've accused Jesus of, transgressing the tradition of the elders. And now Jesus is responding, why do you transgress not your tradition, but why do you transgress God's law? Now then, in verse 4, he continues with this idea. He says, for God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. And so he goes back to Exodus chapter 21, the Ten Commandments, what's on there? Uh, you should honor your father and mother. That one makes sense to many of us, hopefully. But the, the reason is, uh, God puts a command in place because this was his way of taking care of your family. 
So oftentimes in the Middle East, they would actually live on the same property as their mom and dad. They would even add on to the house. So it would just literally be an addition of the room as the families grew. Some of you are shaking your head because you're not that excited about that. But nonetheless, that's how it went in the Middle East. And so God was giving them a command that they should take care of one another. That's ultimately what he was after, that this is what he wanted the family to look like. Except what happens is in verse 5, but you say, speaking back to these uh, Pharisees and scribes, whoever says to his father and mother, mother, whatever profit we might have received from me as a gift of God. They were talking about a rule, and this is uh, described in more detail in Mark chapter 7, something called Corbin. Now what Corbin said is that if they had uh, any excess that they might have given to their father and mother, <clears throat> let's say by example uh, they had two camels. They only needed one camel to get the town and back but they had two. And so uh, they would have naturally just given their extra camel to mom and dad to be able to take it to town and back and use it. But if they would have claimed that second camel as Corbin and said that's a gift to God, it could actually not be given to mom and dad, but instead it's reserved for God and him alone. Now, while it's been reserved for God, guess what? Uh, you can continue to use it yourself until the day you die. And so what they'd actually done is they'd come up with a way that they could give to God to look uh, sanctimonious and to look like they were super religious, but the reality was they were trying to circumvent the law of God that said take care of mom and dad. And so this is precisely what Jesus is now calling them to the carpet on. And what he says in verse 6, he says is, because of this you need not honor your father or mother, thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. They had essentially, through their own rules, nullified God's word. And this is precisely what selfishness always does, by the way. When we settle into a place of selfishness and looking after our own desires first, what we find is that God's word in our life will consistently be ineffective. So this is what Jesus is ultimately addressing with these men. He goes on in verse 7 then uh, to, to heat it up a little bit. He says, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so he begins by calling them uh, hypocrites, or continues by calling them Hypocrites. Now, that's a word in our society that makes us uh, coil up a, a little bit. But understand, uh, the word in Greek is actually a hypocrites, and it's a name for a Greek actor. So in a Greek play, and I love this because Jesus obviously knew a little bit about Greek plays and culture. Uh, in a Greek play, a hypocrite would play both the good character and the bad character. And the way you would know the difference between which character they were playing is they would put a different mask on. They would literally be two-faced. And so as Jesus is addressing them now, he's saying, look, you are two-faced. You want to look really great and tremendous around all your friends, but the reality is uh, you're the bad guy in this play. You've got a wicked and evil heart. And this is the thing about people that love tradition. Um, the reality is they often struggle to live up to their own standards. 
They want to continue to layer rules and regulations on others, but they struggle to live it out in their own life. And what Jesus is really drilling down at, and you can actually see the progression through this text, and we'll go through this, is that they've got a heart issue. It's not an issue of following rules or not. This is a heart problem. It begins in verse 3, and he answered and he said to them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God? So heart problems in this case always begin with looking at the word of God and then beginning to compromise, making concessions on God's word. In other words, we, we look at what God says and we go, You know what? I don't really like that part, so I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to pretend like it doesn't exist. Those pages, I don't need to read that part. I'll just skip ahead where it's all about grace. I don't need to look and adhere my life to God's word. But the problem is, it then moves. Once we begin to compromise God's word, it moves into the next piece. In verse 6, what we just talked about, it's that the word of God has no effect. We actually nullify God's word and we begin to instead prop our beliefs and our rules and our systems. If we're not going to put it on God's word, whose word are we going to put it on? Our own, right? So the question is, what's your foundation based on? And as society changes and things all around us seemingly go to hell in a handbasket, what is your foundation based on? And so if not on the word of God, if, if the word of God is no effect, that which was, which is, and which is to come is of no effect, what are you basing it upon? It's all sand. It's all slippery, and it begins to go downhill fast. Now then, the next step in this, we've, we've compromised. Now God's word isn't effective in our life any longer. Uh, read with me in verse 9. He says, and, they, and in vain they worship me. Worship becomes vanity. It actually becomes hollow. Solomon loved to use this word in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes especially. He would say, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. The word in Hebrew that he used is uh, hevel. Hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. The word literally translated means smoke. It's vapor. So when we worship in vain... When we've compromised and let our hearts slide, when we don't have our foundation based on Jesus Christ and on the word of God, the next thing you know, our worship is actually just smoke. It's a waste of time. Now, what then should we base traditions on? So we, we have traditions. We have rules for a reason. God actually loves organization, believe it or not. But what should it be based upon? Well, the Apostle Paul addresses this in Second Thessalonians Chapter 2, verse 15. Paul writing to this young church in Thessalonica. He was only with these people just a few months. I love this. And yet he, this is what he has to say to them. He says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which were taught, whether by word or by epistle. So when we wonder what traditions we should hold to, we should hold to what is laid out for us in the word, or in the epistles. And so when we talk about in church, what things are we to plant our flag on and go, that's something I'm not willing to waver on? <clears throat> this is our litmus test. Did Jesus uh, preach on it? Did Jesus perform it or participate in the activity? And do the apostles continue that activity through the new church? That's it. <laughs> and what you find is that if you put uh, things to that test, 
Very few things in our Christian walk do we actually need to plant our flag in and say, I will not waver on this. Things like baptism, for an example. What we see is Jesus teaching on it, Jesus actually participating in the activity, and then the apostles continue the activity through the early church. It's why we take those things so very seriously. But other things that are on the periphery, we're not going to plant our flag on those as a church. Continuing on then in verse 10. And when he, Jesus, called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes into a mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. And then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And so what we see is that God's laws throughout Scripture actually deal with what they ate. If you go through the Old Testament, I know you guys love this part of the law, it talks all about what you can and cannot eat, the clean from the unclean. And so sometimes our mind just, like, what in the world? I don't even, I don't know why I would want to eat a camel. I don't even, it's just, this isn't hard for me. I'm not worried about eating that bug. And yet, what we find is that God's laws were actually put in place because he loved them. He wanted to set them apart and sanctify them, make them a holy people that all the nations around them would look and go, man, I want to know more about their God because they are so different, and yet he loves them so much and blesses them, I want to know more about him. But then the second piece of the law is it was to protect them. He knew they wouldn't cook and prepare their little uh, bacon, right? And so he knew you can't eat pig until you know how to cook bacon correctly. So we find that these rules are put in place, but what the Pharisees and the scribes wanted to do is they actually took the rules and the regulations that were meant to protect them, and they made this a pathway to righteousness. In other words, they took what he intended to just merely be a way that you should live, and they actually built a faith that was based upon their works. That no longer did they have to just simply trust in God that he was going to provide for them, but here's a way that I can take care of it on my own. That's the issue that they were having with the law of God. Now then in verse 12, what uh, the, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, do you know that you've uh, offended these Pharisees? That you've now actually offended these guys? And you've got to love it. I mean, these guys are coming, they're talking to Jesus, the Son of God, and they're worried that he might have offended somebody else. What we find in the ministry of Jesus, I think this is interesting. He has grace upon people, and we need grace, by the way. We need grace for salvation. It's through faith by grace in which we were saved, right? So we need grace in order to be saved. This can't be done by any works that we can produce, and yet we also need grace daily. We need grace upon ourselves and grace on others. The definition of grace is just simply getting what we do not deserve. We need to be gracious to others. My favorite acronym on grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. We need that in our lives. But the thing is, when we see Jesus interacting with people, um, there is one group that he does not have grace upon, and that is divisive people. He has no patience, no grace for the divisive. For those that want to come in and disrupt, that want to... to uh, uh, change things within the, the church body. They want to confuse people and actually turn people away from his word. He's got grace upon everybody else. We 
Which is precisely why, as the Apostle Paul was talking to Titus in Titus chapter 3, he says you need to admonish, rebuke a divisive person. In other words, you need to get them out. You need to be done dealing with divisive people. And so as we grow as a church, uh, we are going to be very gracious to people. Jesus had grace upon sailors and fishermen and those that are trying to figure it out. He had grace on prostitutes and demon-possessed people. But when it comes to someone that is intentionally divisive, that wants to come in and disrupt what we have going on, uh, we cannot, will not, should not hesitate to tell them to hit the road. (laughs) That's precisely what the word is saying. And so, grace will be given to all that come in liberally, except for the divisive. Now, continuing on, verse 13. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. And so then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. And and Jesus responds in verse 16 and says, Are you still without understanding? And so they come to him, and they, and they want to know. They want it to be explained. And he, and he lays it out for them that, that every plant which his father has planted, it's, if it's not planted by God, it's going to be uprooted. And then he goes on to call these men the blind leading the blind. Now the thing is, as the blind can be led by the blind, Jesus is actually encouraging them, open your eyes. Look around. Look at who's leading you, who's speaking into your life. If you don't want to be blind, just simply open your eyes and don't follow the blind guy. Because if you do, you're going to end up in the ditch right along with them. And then Peter comes to him and he says, explain this to us. As he's just explained it, once again, you have to love the grace that the Lord has even upon his fishermen who can't seem to get what he's trying to plainly lay out. And he continues and says, are you still without understanding? Do you not Yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated. Thank you. The Lord is now explaining the digestive process to us. He's breaking it down. But those which proceed, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to not eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. He's plainly putting it to them that here's the issue. It's not about what you eat. It's about what's going on in the heart. The heart is what Jesus is trying to address in these Pharisees and with his people. And what we find is that the heart is essentially the seat of our emotions. Proverbs Chapter 23, verse 7. This is what Solomon says. He writes here, For as he thinks in his heart, so he is. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. For as he thinks, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. What Solomon is communicating is the heart makes a convert out of the mind. And if you don't believe that, I would encourage you, especially you men, uh, to just look around. Take a look at that woman who's married to you, and then you will quickly understand that the heart 
has made a convert of the mind. That you've got a, a beautiful woman, she's there along with you, and you know that you are by no means good enough. Right? But at some point in time in this relationship, she looked upon you and her heart fluttered a little bit. And she began to see things in you that didn't actually exist. She was actually converted in her mind based upon what she was feeling in her heart. Right? And it's years later that they finally figure it out. Like, wait a minute. Like, no, it was there the whole time. But what happened is the heart made a convert of the mind. And so, so often we want to try to get things right in our head and, and, and get our head wrapped around it. And what Jesus is communicating is, no, you need, to get your, you need to get your heart wrapped around this first. That a renewed heart will actually be the way, the path to renewed relationships. Now, when we look at the heart uh, throughout Scripture, this is something that, that Jesus wants to drive home for us to understand, that the heart is actually a place in which we are to first believe. So often, especially for those of us that are super logical about things and, and methodical, we, we forget it's actually the heart is where we need to believe first, which is why Romans chapter 10, verse 9, this will be a familiar verse to many of you, the, the Roman road, the road to salvation, the Apostle Paul says this. He says in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that the Lord, that the Lord, excuse me, hang on. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not if you convince yourself in your mind, but if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The heart is vital for salvation. Secondly, Jesus, addressing people in Matthew 22, says this, and these things are progressive, by the way. He was approached by a young a Pharisee who wanted to know what was the greatest commandment, and this is Jesus' response in Matthew 22, 37. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. What begins with belief and transitions to salvation, it then turns to love. When you begin to realize just what he has done, what he saved you from, you will have this response like, how do I get to know him better? I feel this tremendous love inside. I'm beginning to fall in love with my God, my creator, my savior. And so this is the next step. Thirdly, it then gives birth to singing. The Apostle Paul addressing the church there in Colossians chapter 3. He says this in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and in spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. As we come in here and we have time to worship, this is how we are to worship. If we've believed upon him, we begin to love him, and this relationship grows, we then cannot help but sing to him. Sing in our hearts, right? How many of you have gotten a song in your heart and you just cannot get it out? You realize what Jesus has done for you, and I hate to tell you how many times I've embarrassed my poor wife in Walmart because the Lord's put a song on my heart. I, I have to sing. I cannot help it. And I'm convinced that if I'm wearing a mask, you can't tell where the music's coming from. So it doesn't matter how bad it is because I've got the mask on. They can't tell it's me singing. Isn't this good? Now, she has told me recently uh, that Tom Petty is not actually a worship leader. So I was very surprised. 
To which I responded to her, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell and I... Okay, that's enough for you. You sing that out at Walmart, you turn some heads right there. There you go. But, but, but we begin to have this song in our heart. It builds up. And then lastly, what we see is, is then you'll be inclined to give to the Lord. Right? You, you, you cannot help because you're so overjoyed that then you want to actually give to him of your time, of your talents, of your money. He, it's just an over, overflowing and outpouring. In fact, the Apostle Paul addresses this with the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And, and the Corinthian church that he's speaking to here, uh, he's talking specifically about the Philippians. The Philippians, they're giving actually out of their poverty. They don't have anything, but yet out of their poverty, they're giving of everything they have. But now he's addressing the Corinthians, and they've got plenty. We could call the Corinthians the first Charlestonians. So, so, so here they are. They're in America. You know, in my story, they're in America. They're actually in Asia Minor. But you get the idea. They have plenty, and so what Paul tells them in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't want us to give to him uh, begrudgingly or because we feel like we just must or we have to. There's a reason we don't pass a plate here, by the way. It's because none of you should feel compelled to give. God started this church long before any of y'all are here. I hope you, you stay after this, but, but, he, but he started this long before, and it's going to go on until he says he's done. And so that the idea of giving is actually one of cheer and joy, and it comes from the heart. And the word Paul hears, the word Paul uses is God loves a cheerful giver. The word in Greek could also be translated hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver, meaning he wants you, whenever you go to drop that thing in the box, he wants you literally to throw your head back and just go, ha-ha, oh, man, God, you are so good. I cannot believe how good my God is. I believe in him. I love him. I'm going to sing to him, and now he can have whatever he wants. The reality is Psalm says that the cattle on a thousand hills is his, the, the earth and all of its fatness. It's all his anyway. And so you're really just giving back what he already gave to you. And so God loves a cheerful giver, and that's how we are to react to him. And so Jesus looks at all this that's going on, and notice with me, he doesn't just simply back away from these people that were so offended. They were up in his face wanting to talk to him. But instead, he gives very wise counsel in verse 14. He tells his disciples, let them alone. Let them alone. They want to come at you with everything they've got. Here's how you handle it. You simply give them the truth in love and just leave them alone. Don't try to convince them. Don't try to beat them over the head with it. Just let them be. And so that's precisely what the Lord has given to his disciples in this message. And so, with all this being said, I think about our church. Where's the church at today, right? There's been this huge wave over this last 15, 20 years to go away from traditional denominational church. And I want to just warn you with that, uh, because we can get so uh, traditional about being non-traditional. 
And what I mean by that, if any of you were around in the early 90s with music, what do you know happened is the grunge movement, right? Alternative rock, 1993, Pearl Jam, Nirvana. They showed up and changed the face of music with a sound called alternative. And what you found is just a few years later, what was everybody listening to? The alternative. And you know what the alternative was? It wasn't the alternative anymore. It was pop. They wouldn't have liked that. They would have kicked against that. But the reality is we can go so far the other direction that then we can become traditional about being non-traditional. And in church, words float around like legalism, right? We don't want to be legalistic. And so we throw it out there. I don't want to be legalistic about that. or I hate to be a legalist. But, but I guess where I'm going with this is what does that really mean? What is legalism and what is not legalism? And so what I want to run through as we close today is precisely that. What is legalism? What is not? There's going to be a bunch of scriptural references. I want to encourage you to jot these down because you should not just take my word uh, for anything. <laughs> as the Apostle Paul addressed uh, the church in Berea in Acts chapter 17, what, what we found is he would address the church there, uh, these Bereans, and they listened to what Paul said, and then they went back and they looked it up. <laughs> and he actually encouraged us to do that, to go and be Bereans to hear what the word is from whoever's teaching, but then take the scripture references back and go look them up for yourself. Decide for yourself. And so I I put two categories up here. What is legalism and what is not? And we'll begin with what is legalism. Uh, First of all, it's being overly critical of behaviors not prohibited in scripture. And so the scriptural reference that I have is Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, verse 3. Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he says this. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. And then verse 4. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. And so the, uh, the imploration by Paul is, don't judge what one person eats or what another eats, but instead, uh, mind your own beeswax, is what Paul's essentially saying. And so as I think about that, in the church being overly critical of behaviors not prohibited in Scripture, I'm going to just go ahead and hit on one that's probably going to make all of us uh, nervous a little bit, and that's alcohol. Okay, that's what I thought it would be. All right, so alcohol, nowhere in Scripture, is prohibited. It's not specifically said in the Old Testament or in the New that you shall not drink. And yet, different denominations have taken hardline stances on both sides of this. And so you've got some that have said, if you drink, it's like the equivalent of me sacrificing chickens in the parking lot. It's the worst thing you could do. And, and they would go and lump smoking on top of that. You're probably going to hell because you drink and because you smoke. But the reality is, um, it's not actually in Scripture whatsoever. And so we've come up with all these rules and regulations about what you should do and what you should not do, but it's not clearly spelled out. And so in an area where the Bible is silent, we should be silent on that matter. But don't worry if that makes you uncomfortable here in just a minute. I'll make everybody else feel uncomfortable too. Um, But when you look at alcohol in the Old Testament, what you will also find is that it's never glamorized. It's never actually glorified. In fact, some of the most horrendous decisions in all the Old Testament were made 
because uh, alcohol was involved. When you look at uh, Lot and the relationship he had with his daughters, in Genesis chapter 19, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are utterly destroyed, and they go and they hide out in a cave. And apparently, as they were running out, they thought to grab some of their belongings, and they made sure to grab some wine, because they had their priorities in order, clearly. And so they grab the wine, and they decide in the cave um, to get dad drunk and sleep with him and have an ancestral relationship with their father. So there, just by example, you see some awful decisions made under the influence of alcohol. And I will tell you, some of the most awful decisions I have made have almost consistently been made under the influence of alcohol. And yet, what we find is we cannot make prohibitive rules and regulations about what a person should or should not do because it's not in Scripture. Now then, moving on down. Number two, following the traditions of man rather than those of God. That's our text that we look at today. That what we see is that the word of God cannot be circumvented through our own traditions. And what we find is so often that there's all these additional rules and layers, and this is what you must do in order to get your way, earn your way to Jesus. Some very simple Bible math that goes like this. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. That nothing can be added or taken away from him. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. You can't gain access. You can't earn it. You can't work hard enough in order to get there. Now then, the next place, the next thing to mention that is legalism, it's treating anything other than Christ, his righteousness, and my faith in him as necessary for salvation is legalism. Anything that's beyond those points, we are being legalistic, which is why the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, he says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is everything, and he is in everything. And what the Apostle Paul essentially did is he utterly destroyed any racial barriers, any religious background barriers, that any spot you want to come into Christ, you can come from that spot. Now, is he going to clean you up a whole lot? Absolutely. Is he going to change things about your life? You bet. But the point is, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, by the way, that is everybody. Whether you're circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, Christ is it. If it's anything beyond him, then you've managed to put your own rules and regulations upon it, and it's legalism. So, moving then on to the next list, what is not legalism? First of all, being serious about my holiness, about holiness in my life. That is not legalism. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Oh, I missed Hebrews. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. That's how serious the writer to the Hebrews thought about holiness and pursuing that in your life. Second text to go along with that, Ephesians chapter 5. 
Ephesians 5 verse 5 says this, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God is really, really, really serious about purity in my life. That's the key word in this. I am to pursue purity and holiness in my life. And it's not legalism for me to take that very, very seriously. And so I have to constantly be questioning myself, what are my inputs? What kind of way, what things am I allowing into my life that's actually encouraging purity or actually taking away from it? Secondly, it's not legalism to think of the Christian life as a life of obedience guided by the commandments of the Almighty. That we shouldn't look at commandments and requirements by God as just more rules and regulations. That in fact, what John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, he says this is actually uh, how you love God. For this is the love of God, verse 3, that we keep his commandments and his commands are not burdensome. The Christian life was not meant to be more layers and rules and things that we had to do, but instead things we get to do. And when you begin to understand this in your life, when Christianity goes from I have to do these things to I get to do these things, it changes everything. Because I don't have to. He's given me liberty to do all sorts of things. But the reality is, I actually get to not. <laughs> I get to refrain. I get to take a step back and go, you know what, I'm going to live more pure. I'm going to live more holy because this is how much he loved me. I'm going to show him how much I love him, which ties into the next verse, and it's this, to have an aim to please God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 9. Oh, I'm in chapter 6. No wonder it didn't make sense. Oh my gosh. There we go. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. I would challenge you in that. To run your decision-making, what you do and do not do, on this grid. Does this please God? Am I trying? Am I striving to actually please him? Does this draw me closer to him or push me further away? Or is this just simply neutral? Because he's given us liberty to do all sorts of things. So I'll go back up to the hot button topic we just talked about, and that is alcohol. Here's my stance on it and why I do what I do, and I'll just share for me personally. For years and years, I struggled. I struggled with drinking, and the reason was Shame, guilt, regret, disappointment. All those things lumped together meant I needed to turn to something to have some kind of relief. I needed to somehow have the pressure just relieved from my brain. And so, fast forward years later, what, what happens is Jesus gets a hold of me and he changes everything. And then, amazingly, miraculously, he takes that thing that I used to have to turn to to actually have relief, and he, he instead takes that spirit out, and he gives me the Holy Spirit. Way better trade-off, by the way. You don't want to have those spirits. You want the Holy Spirit. And so he gives that 
to me, and in the process takes away this desperate need for alcohol. And so now, here I am, years later, I have liberty again. He's freed me from it. I can sit down, saddle up next to you, have a drink, no problem whatsoever. I don't feel the need to have 13 like I used to. So praise the Lord, that's what he's done. I have liberty to not do that. And yet, I have to ask myself, does this actually please the Lord? Is this going to grow my relationship with him? I want so much to please him. Is this going to advance us down the path, or is this actually going to hinder us? And then to take it a step further, I have to think of what does this look like from the outside looking in? Because the reality is, as a pastor, if you see me saddled up at the bar at B-dubs with a beer in my hand, how are you going to react? I have to seriously consider that. I have to weigh that because what the Lord says is that it would be better for me to have a millstone tied around my neck and thrown into the bottom of the sea than to stumble one of these little ones. And I know where I was at when I wasn't following Jesus and I wasn't looking for him, but I would still occasionally show up at church. If I showed up at a place like that and I saw my pastor with a beer in his hand or a guy I would have called my pastor, I would have puffed my chest out and told you it didn't bother me, but the truth is it would have devastated me. I would have been shaken right to my core because I would have thought, man, I thought he was better than that. And so I'm not going to put myself in that position because I'm not going to take a chance of stumbling another person. And when I go and I get the opportunity to see my Jesus face to face, I want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I hope he says. I don't know if I'm there yet, but I aim to please God. Finally, and lastly, it is not legalism to warn professing Christians, you can underline that, and stir them up about pursuing holiness in their own lives. Hebrews chapter 12, or chapter 10, the writer to the Hebrews says this in verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting each other, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Boy, look around, friends. The day is approaching. We are getting closer. How close? I don't know, but we're closer today than we were yesterday. I'm certain of that. And so as we are called to actually come together, we are called not to forsake the fellowship, forsake the assembly and coming through this season we've seen a bunch of folks and a lot of them rightfully so they were worried scared stirred up no doubt at at even gathering together with others and yet when we don't assemble what happens is we then can't come alongside one another we can't encourage one another i can't if i see you struggling in an area in your life come alongside and go hey are you doing okay are things all right, on the home front. Hey, how are you handling this situation? What's, what's going on? Can you tell me a little bit about it? it it's not for the purpose of, of bringing them down and crushing them and getting my thumb on someone, but is it born from a place of love and affection that I care enough about you and I'm invested enough? This is the other piece. This 
requires investment. You have to spend time. We have to spend time together with one another in order to build a relationship to be able to speak into someone's life. But so much of what's happened is the church has gone from being traditional. And no doubt, for years upon years, they would beat people up. The church history, it's not pretty. And yet, the other side is, we become so non-traditional that nobody will tell anyone anything hard anymore. We can't even say something hard to a brother or sister that might help them, that might save them, that might stop them from utterly destroying their family and their life because we're worried about, I don't want to be a legalist. I don't know that I can speak into their life. Friends, that's not legalism. That's love. And so, as you come in here today, no doubt you've fallen on one side of this or the other. Maybe you've struggled with legalism and tradition and rules and regulations. I want to encourage you, hang that coat up at the door. You can't wear it. Your parents couldn't wear it. Your parents' parents couldn't wear it. It's too much to bear. Hang it up. But then perhaps you've come in on the other side where you've struggled with with people who've been legalistic in your life so much so that you don't want to have legalism prevail. I want to encourage you to let the Holy Spirit breathe the breath of purity into your life. That's precisely what he wants to do. He wants to breathe that upon you. And then when he does, you're going to realize how great he was, how great he is, and how great he will be for all of eternity. It will change everything. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for a scripture and a text that is uh, no doubt challenging. <laughs> Many of us have come from tradition and some of that tradition was tremendous. We've had the word of God spoken into our life. So much light been shown that we have to answer for. And so, Father, thank you for that. And yet on the flip side, there's been so much of a desire to not be a legalist that we've lost any kind of effectiveness as a church. We've lost the ability to say anything hard, but first we've lost the ability to look into our own lives at things that are difficult and been unwilling to deal with those. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me of the ways that I have been unwilling to deal with the hard in my own life. Lord, purify me. <laughs> Lord, cleanse me. And the same thing goes with my brothers and sisters. Father, purify us, cleanse us. Make us effective again as a church, Lord. Not just here at Woodlawn Chapel only, but the church at large, Lord. So we lift all this up to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can all stand with me. <clears throat> Great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, 
your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written jesus christ my living hope who could imagine so great a mercy what heart could fathom such boundless grace the god of ages steps down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame the cross is spoken the cross is spoken i am forgiven the king of kings calls me his own beautiful savior i'm yours forever jesus christ my living hope hallelujah set me free hallelujah death has lost its grip on me you have broken every chain there's salvation in your name jesus christ my living hope then came the morning then came the morning that sealed the promise your buried body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me jesus yours is the victory hallelujah you so much thank you for being our hope and um for forgiving us of all of our sins for cleansing us and giving us new life we love you so much and god we pray that we would um we would be free from feeling like we need to be legalistic and just free to love you and chase after the life that you have for us um god you're so good we love you it's in jesus name we pray amen Amen. Thank you, guys. God bless you. We look forward to seeing you next week. Don't forget Saturday, uh, Biscuits and Gravy Day, and also uh, Sunday we'll have a meal after church. I'm up here to pray if you guys need me. God bless.